Hello, my name is Randy Ostra, President and CEO of Prometica. I'm pleased to welcome you to this eight-part series of healthcare reform discussions with nationally recognized health policy experts. These interviews will discuss Medicare policy, including healthcare pricing, long-term care, and the social determinants of health. This series is part of an ongoing two-year effort by more than a dozen hospital CEOs from around the U.S. to urge Congress to take up significant health care policy reform legislation, largely by calling for the creation of a National Commission on Health Care Reform. It is our intent that these policy reforms discussed during these interviews demonstrate our desire for substantive national reform. Moreover, that these interviews help to further inform congressional members and committee staff as they work to craft legislation to improve health care delivery and financing during the next Congress. Our motivation is straightforward. Well before the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, we were adamant that race, age, and or economic circumstances should not be defined as pre-existing conditions. Nor do we accept the premise that Americans should be resigned to live shorter lives in poorer health. We invite you to listen to or to read the transcripts of all eight interviews. If you'd like to provide comment, you can do so via the contact information noted at the conclusion of these interviews. Welcome to this series of eight interviews concerning federal health care policy reform. I'm the host, David Intracasso. With me to discuss social determinants of health are Dr. Paula Braveman and Dr. Laura Gottlieb, both professors of family community medicine in the School of Medicine at the University of California in San Francisco. Dr. Braveman and Dr. Gottlieb, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be Dr. Braveman and Dr. Gottlieb's bios are posted with this interview's audio file and transcript. On background, despite the fact the U.S. vastly outspends all other countries on health care, the country ranks near last or last in access, affordability, and outcomes. And this holds true even for white, educated, insured, and upper-income Americans. What largely explains this higher-spending poor health paradox are the social determinants of health generally defined as education, economic circumstances, food security, housing, and social, environmental, and related exposures. Where people live, work, and socialize determines approximately 60% of their health status, whereas medical care accounts for approximately 10%. Despite the essential role social determinants play, the U.S. has the lowest ratio of healthcare spending to social services spending in the OECD. For every dollar spent on health care, the U.S. spends $1 on social services. Across the remaining 36 OECD countries, the ratio averages $1 on health care to $2.50 on social services. Two related points deserve note. First, concerning economic circumstances, the U.S. suffers extreme income and wealth inequality. The U.S. has the fifth highest OECD Gini coefficient and the top 0.1% of the U.S. population holds roughly the same share of wealth as the bottom 90%. Second, as for the healthcare industry's investment and social determinants, a study published in February 2020 found that among 57 health systems, that include 957 hospitals, or one-sixth of all U.S. hospitals, 
Researchers found that they collectively invested only $2.5 billion in social determinants programming over a two-year period, or just 4% of their overall community benefit spending. With me again to discuss social determinants policy are the University of San Francisco's Dr. Paula Braveman and Dr. Laura Gottlieb. So with that as background and introduction, Paula and Laura, let me begin by asking just a general overview question, and that is, what's your general assessment of how we've addressed social determinants of health? I think that you have, uh, this is Paula, uh, I think that uh, you, David, have um, already cited some of the, the, the key uh, evidence, you know, in the answer um, to that question. We, we are not doing well on the social determinants of health, and one very major uh, piece of evidence for that is the fact that we, although we, we spend more uh, on medical care than any other country on the face of the earth, but we consistently rank uh, at the bottom or near the bottom among peer countries. And by peer countries, I'm, I'm referring to uh, countries that are relatively high income and industrialized uh, uh, and actually referring to democracies as well. Uh, and uh, the, I think that how striking that fact is has to lead people to, to raise questions about what, you know, what are we doing in relation to the social determinants of health, you know, that might explain that, that paradox of spending more than anybody on health care and yet having worse health. And it very important to keep in mind that there have been very major scientific advances in the last uh, 10 to 20 years that uh, really have demonstrated uh, scientifically uh, the important, crucial role that the social determinants of health play. Um, and uh, just among the, the highlights among that, I think that are important important in understanding, again, understanding this paradox of spending more and having poorer health, that there have been some of the most striking advances have been those in neuroscience um, that have indicated about how social factors like income and education and wealth and stress and racism actually get into the body. Um, and we have learned, and neuroscience has taught us that chronic stress is very likely a major contributor to both socioeconomic and racial or ethnic disparities in health. We've learned that childhood experiences, childhood social circumstances shape adult health. And, and we have started to understand the, the biology of, of all of these. We've understood, uh, started to understand um, how racism shapes health. Um, through pathways both uh, that involve the living conditions and also pathways that involve, that directly involve stress um, and the, the toll that chronic stress um, can take and how that leads, you know, what we learned is this, about the biology of that, how chronic stress actually leads to um, inflammation and to immune system dysregulation. Um, you know, both of which lead to, um, to chronic disease. We, we've also learned the whole science of epigenetics 
has come up. And it's, the, I think, the most um, eloquent statement and concise statement about what epigenetics mean is one by uh, Professor Stern, uh, Professor Emeritus from UC Davis. She said that genes load the gun, but the environment pulls the trigger. And I think that really that really sums it up. So we, the science is there. I think that's a very um, that's a very important thing for people to understand that we're in a different situation now, talking about the social determinants of health and how important they are than we were 20, uh, 30 years ago. Okay, thank you. So you reminded me of you know the phrase you'll hear on this per your point is allostatic load. Um, so okay. thank you for that. Uh, uh, Laura, uh, would you like to make a comment? You know, Paula is really uh, one of the national experts on this, so I don't know that I have a lot a lot more to contribute. I think that this leads really, um, you know, to the to the, the next question, which is very very much about well, you know, if we have this these fifty years of uh, in, you know increasingly strong, consistent, compelling evidence saying that social factors influence health. Um, what has the healthcare system um, mobilized to do about it? And, um, you know, that is, um, that's where Paul's and my work intersects and uh, where our our team has, you know, been focusing an increasing amount of energy. Um, so, you know, on, on that front, I, w- I would just say that, you know, we've, ta- we've taken that, that 50 years of evidence <laughs> um, and then now was sort of coupled with this increased, increased attention to value-based um, care and um, value-based payment this models. So the healthcare system is now saying, oh, maybe we should be doing something about social determinants. Um, and it's not that people weren't interested or weren't in, in uh aware of that evidence as it was emerging, but that it was just much more piecemeal, much kind of less systematic or strategic. Um, and now I think really in the last decade, we've been seeing health systems say, gosh, you know, with value-based payment, we, we're going to be on the hook for this. And we can't be as siloed in uh, kind of the traditional wheelhouse of medicine as we have been, as we've been pigeonholed before. So now we're seeing this sort of growing crop of health professional organizations that have endorsed um, a, a wide range, really, of healthcare actions on um, on social conditions as a strategy for improving uh, both individual and population health. Okay, thank you. And we will obviously get to the response, what it's been, and what it where it should be, or how it should evolve. Before I, I go there, I did. Uh, purposely mentioned uh, in my intro the income inequality or economic inequality issue. So let me uh, push down on that. I did know, note, uh, Paula, you had a, a short piece in uh, via RWJF, uh, Wealth Matters for Health Equity, September 1, 2018. Uh, but that aside, uh, because, of course, we know wealth is correlated to health, I, I noted again economic inequality in the opening Um Though the consequences of of economic inequality are glaring, uh, and one might phrase it or think about it in context of, and I'm sure you're well aware of the uh, the, the phrase "deaths of despair," uh, the problem receives extremely little discussion in health policy circles uh, and by organized medicine. In fact, I, I 
the AMA, as an example of the latter, has has interestingly said nothing about increasing the minimum wage, which you are probably aware has not been raised. The federal minimum has not been raised uh, since '09. It's not indexed, and of course, it would be an important step to address, addressing uh, racial inequality and health equity. So, my question is uh, for you: Why, why have we not seen, and/or might we begin to see more emphasis in the health? Uh, care policy circles related to uh, addressing uh, the effects, the just economic inequality per se, and its effects on population health. Well, you know, it, it, it's it's very interesting that both that economic inequality translates into a lot of people having living in, in poor conditions and uh, living in the circumstances that we know are not good for their health. And those circumstances include inadequate childcare and inadequate housing and inadequate nutrition and a daily a daily struggle to cope uh, with the everyday challenges. Um, uh, uh, being while being faced with it, having in, inadequate resources, and um, and so it's not just a theoretical thing, you know, a relative thing. The economic inequality. There are you know too many people who are uh, who are living in unhealthy you know, unhealthy environments, unhealthy physical and and social environments that are under the control of social policy. But it's also uh, very interesting um, and sad at the same time that economic inequality, there's very good reason to believe that that exacerbates um, one of the major reasons, I think, that explains why we have such low relatively low um, social service spending to medical care spending. And that's a, a, a profound a lack of social solidarity and a lack of social cohesion. Um, and, you know, scholars, I think, have laid this um, out pretty convincingly how it is that economic inequality can uh, lead to uh, greater uh, to, to less social solidarity, to less social cohesion, um, and it's, it's a vicious circle because then you you also have less push for uh, humane social policies um, for everyone, and um, so I think I mean connected with with that the, the lack of social solidarity um, is the the issue of racism. And I, I think in looking at what could explain why we have such a low ratio of social service spending to healthcare spending, that it is it is very likely that, uh, and a lot has been written about this by by many scholars that, that that racism has played a very important role in it. Why are we different from all of these other industrialized, you know, high income? Countries and many scholars have concluded that that the that our 
racism has divided us and has made so that the the majority um, uh, the majority uh, who are more enfranchised and who have more who have more power um, do not vote for programs that are going to uh, help the disadvantaged because they see the, the, the disadvantage represented by um, people of other racial and, and ethnic groups. Um, and, and so I think that the issue of racism and general um, social cohesion, social solidarity are really, really important um, here. I, I think the other, uh, you know, another major issue um, uh, when we look at the causes, what could explain the, you know, the, the low social service spending in the in the U.S. Um, and uh, why the healthcare sector is not investing more in in the social determinants of health, um, which is that we have a huge for-profit healthcare industry, and it's a very powerful it's a very powerful lobby, and that that's part of why there's been the, the success in getting more and more spending for healthcare. That that's a very important part of the scenario um, that's uh, uh, very difficult um, to deal with, um, but must be must be dealt with. Um, so uh, I I think that the the you know the 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 low social social service spending, um, uh, which may also just um, reframe it, low investment in the social determinants of health. Also, um, I think the other big uh, issue here uh, is are the silos, and um, and and Laura referred to um, referred to that in, in in passing, and what she said. Um, so I, I would just underscore that, that the way it's set up right now, you know, health is not the responsibility of the healthcare sector. Um, uh, that because the social determinants of health are, um, uh, are such critical, uh, such critical determinants, such critical factors, um, they are, they are not under the control of the healthcare industry and the healthcare industry, uh, you know, it's, it should not be surprising that they have not felt responsible. Um, it's perhaps more remarkable that they have, that there has been increasing interest shown by the healthcare sector, but we have these silos so that the one, so if it's the healthcare sector, and let's just even include the public sector in this, if the healthcare sector invests in the social determinants of health, it doesn't get the credit. You know, the, the incentives are, are, are perverse. You know, the credit will go, uh, will go elsewhere. And that is that the silos in our, um, in our government structure, uh, or it's, you know, it's in the structure, the general economic and social and political structure, these silos, I think, have also been, a, uh, have been and will and continue to be a big obstacle to seeing investment in the social determinants of health, including by the 
the healthcare sector. Thank you. Let, let's, Laura, did you have a comment? No, I, I just, um, it's such a, uh, Paula's points about um, the wide range of reasons for lack of investment in uh, social conditions in the United States and for addressing income inequality are so um, deep. There's, and, you know, it's, it's a particularly poignant time to be talking about them on the day after the, um, the Capitol was, was, you know, attacked by a, a mob because I think it's just sort of lays bare the, these issues of, you know, racism and lack of social cohesion and solidarity that are really sort of the fundamentally the causes of, um, of you know, why, um, why we aren't investing. Yeah, why we aren't investing in health, uh, but also why are we not investing in health excuse me, in education or in um, employment or in um, other strategies for people to, um, to you know, have, have equal opportunity. Um, yeah, I just, Paul, I really appreciate that, uh, your take on the sort of range of reasons. So uh, I appreciate you bringing in the, uh, the issue of the, uh, the, the attempted coup yesterday. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Part of the, the, the there there are numerous other confounding factors, least of which is because we spend so much on healthcare, pushing four trillion. Uh, it certainly crowds out other mm -hmm. public spending. Uh, and when you said education, that was my immediate thought. Well, uh, education. Uh, if you look at state budget, but then federal level certainly, and at state budgets too, when state uh, Medicaid uh, budgets are ever increasing. That crowds out spending or compromises state spending on education. Let's go to the res um, responses. And Laura, you made note of we're moving into, uh, and per uh, Paul's comment about uh, perverse incentives, we're moving towards models uh, generically termed pay for performance, uh, where uh, as opposed to just uh, fee for service or fee for volume, uh, you're well aware that under the Affordable Care Act, we started the program of affordable care, uh, affordable care organizations or accountable care rather organizations, the Medicare Church Savings Program, MSSP, and they're incented to reduce their benchmark spending uh, more or less any way they can. And so if they can address, for example, the typical food uh, security, of course, housing stability, uh, transportation are more more common uh, social issues. Uh, they can reduce clinical or medical spending, and we have seen uh, when you address social determinants, for example, you can reduce or limit hospital readmissions, for example. So, how do you think these models have progressed or are progressing? Again, because now there's an incentive to incorporate or dovetail clinical care with social service supports. And moreover, beyond the Medicare program, of course, we've seen this just by way of setup into this question. It's the Medicaid program. Uh, the Medicaid program supports social determinant programming um, through waivers at the federal level. And then states increasingly are requiring their Medicaid managed care organizations under contract uh, to address. In fact, all states' uh, Medicaid programs require transportation services. And then from there, it breaks down. A lot of it is just encouraging MCOs to provide other services. 
Uh, so really we see more of this in the Medicaid space, but increasingly in Medicare. But how do you see these progressing? You know, this is another example where uh, the question is very timely. Um, just today, um, CMS actually issued a new state health officer's letter that specifically clarifies some of the confusion that there's been around the, sort of how you can use Medicaid and CHIP dollars specifically to support social determinants of health-related services and supports. Um, so this is, this is uh, uh, hot off the presses. Um, but, you know, seven years ago, or I think, uh, I can't remember when we did our first project with the state Medicaid agencies asking them sort of what they thought they were allowed to pay for. What we heard from the, from the state Medicaid agencies at the time was we, or actually first we heard it from the, Medi the, the Medicaid managed care organizations was we don't really know. And then what we heard from the state managed care agents, the state Medicaid agencies was, well, we don't, we're not really sure. And we may like try to authorize something for our, the managed care organizations under our, you know, in our state, but we're not really sure CMS is going to approve it. And, um, and now we're finally seeing CMS offer some much more detailed guidance saying what's allowed and what's not allowed. Um, so yes, you're right. In Medicaid, there's been more flexibility than traditionally there has been in Medicare, although even in Medicare, um, under the Chronic Care Act in 2018, they uh, allowed some more flexibility um, to support uh, non-primarily health-related services. Um, so, I mean, I can go through some of the examples, you know, that are included in that letter, but you're right. It's, you know, mostly under waivers, but there also is a lot of flexibility in case management and targeted case management support. There's um, a, a range of social determinants related work that can come under uh, long-term support and services in the home community-based services programs. Um, there's, you know, the, the health homes activities, um, a lot of the 1115 demonstrations um, are enabling things like, you know, recurrent cleaning services, housing transition support, um, which includes like one-time expenses or just like down payments. Um, and then you mentioned medical transportation, um, but, but there's actually a lot of activity now around non-medical transportation and that's true both in Medicaid and in Medicare. So um, I think we're seeing a lot more flexibility. One of the major impediments so far, barriers so far to adoption has been this sort of ongoing confusion about what's allowed. And hopefully this new letter is going to really help. And even, you know, under that 2018 change to the Medicare Advantage uh, supplemental benefits flexibility, you know, you're not really going to the changes until you know the process of what what benefits are allowed and approved it just takes so long that we're not really going to see those changes until 2021 so you know we we did some interviews with 63 or some around 60 plan leaders from 31 different medicare advantage plans and all, a lot of them said yeah we're thinking about it we're talking about it we're including it in next year's plan but they just weren't yet sure of well what what should we be doing? And to be fair, like part of that is just hesitance about what will be allowed. And then part of that is some lack of data and evidence about exactly which interventions are the most impactful. And um, so, so we're learning a lot as we go. 
Thank you. I'm glad you mentioned uh, MA, uh, Medicare Advantage Plans, of course, because as you noted, uh, there was regulatory reform to what supplemental benefits, uh, expansion, CMS was authorizing. And I, I smiled when you noted because there was a lot of confusion over what uh, what was in and what was out relative to what uh, expansion would allow for uh, for MA. Um, yeah. let, let me, I do have to, I'd be remiss. This is always the, the sort of the crux of the matter. And that's the question. Other than sort of regulatory confusion or uncertainty, uh, this always comes down to largely appropriately uh, the question of ROI or what's the return on investment. And and you would both would know much better than I would, but I do have at least some awareness that the, the research is somewhat mixed although maybe I'm being optimistic, but um, there is research that does show that there is a return because the, the argument you'll hear is we don't know or we're uncertain you know, how far we should go down this road because whether it's remunerative. So what's your understanding of the extent to which investments made in social determinants by providers uh, it does provide for them a return on their investment? Well, uh, I'm glad this issue came came up. Um, the, the fact is that the impact of many social determinants of health is not evident often for decades mm-hmm. and sometimes it's for generations. And it is impossible really to do a randomized clinical trial. So if that's the standard for evidence that you've got RCT results about the effectiveness of an intervention, you're never going to have it, or almost never going to have it. Um, uh, you know, there are other study designs uh, and methodologies that are rigorous. Um, RCTs aren't the only, the only one, um, but there, that's um, part of the uphill battle, I think, is, you know, a is a recognition that, you know, the gold standard of the RCT is just, it, it's not going to make it because the results show up much later. So, for example, with, um, uh, uh, you know, I brought up the issue of, you know, how neuroscience has traced out how how it is that stress damages health. Well, the way that it damages health um, doesn't show up often for for decades. Uh, And so some of the most powerful social determinants are those experienced during childhood. And if you, you know, you want to measure the effect of those during childhood, you're, you're, you know, you're not necessarily going to see something. It's looking, you know, at that person's fifth decade of life, their Mm -hmm. fifth or sixth decade of life and their premature mortality you know, from processes that now, we, I mean, we, we, underst- we understand them. Um, but, uh, you know, we need, I think there needs to be more discussion about, so, you know, so what is, you know, what are the standards uh, for the evidence? There also, there hasn't, and, and, and another obstacle is that there hasn't been enough investment in studying the, the impact of the social determinants of health. Um, and an investment in developing methodologies, creative methodologies um, that can uh, yield 
uh, rigorous studies, studies that are rigorous yet not um, not RCTs. Yeah, I um, wrote a, a paper with some colleagues a, a while ago, but the title was When Do We Know Enough to Act on the Social Determinants of Health? Um, and it was really a, you know, a discussion of, of these issues. Mm -hmm. So we, we do need evidence. This, you know, uh, just because you can't run an RCT of something doesn't mean that you can just, you know, throw out all the evidence and, uh, for example, do, do what the mob did yesterday at the Capitol building. You know, they weren't troubled by evidence. So we, um, we want evidence. There always has to be evidence and critical thinking um, and rigorous science. But there are you know, we, there's some uh, creativity that's needed because of this issue that the action of many of the social determinants of health does not manifest for, for decades. Yes, I, I, Paul, I appreciate your mentioning a childhood because this is the CDC's Adverse Childhood Experiences ACE study. Uh, that they've run longitudinally. Um, and, of course, we, we do know that children who suffer, for example, um, childhood sexual abuse, uh, that manifests uh, throughout their adult lives um, in pronounced and profound ways, um, certainly. Let, let me ask, Laura, um, since you addressed the, med the Medicaid program, uh, I'd be curious to ask, how are Medicaid program officers or state or federal Medicaid policymakers thinking about this issue? If for no other reason, how do they prioritize uh, budgets or spending uh, between and amongst the numerous social determinants? Mm -hmm. I mean, so first I, I agree with Paula. I think that there is, um, you know, the, the way we currently study impacts um, in many ways doesn't enable us to adequately capture um, the impact of the interventions that you know, take a, a much longer time to manifest. At the same time, um, I think we are seeing a growing crop of uh, studies that are showing that um, housing is uh, both ethical and cost-effective. I just don't want to undermine the ethics argument here. Um, and that, um, uh, healthy, nutritious meals are cost-effective. We have there's actually a, a nice little group of studies that are showing that. There's some that are sort of multi-domain studies. There's sort of great evidence now from the uh, group at University of Pennsylvania around the impact of, of community health workers that are really sort of helping people on a lot of different domains and showing that the um, ROI of that is um, is very impressive. So, you know, people are turning to those few studies that do exist that suggest that there is, um, in some cases, an immediate ROI. I think there's some big questions remaining around um, for, for which patients, um, you know, it, it may, you know, when we look at the um, utilization pyramid of, you know, the top 1% that use X number of resources and then the sort of rising risk people that are sort of the 5 to, to 10 or 15%, depending on where you you know, put your lines on your pyramid um, of people who use up resources in the healthcare system versus the sort of bottom 80 to 85%. Um, 
it may be that different types of interventions are relevant to different groups of those. And it may be that we're not going to move the needle necessarily for the top 1%, but maybe we could really make a dent in that rising risk group with some of these social risk-related interventions. And then there's just one other point that I think is worth mentioning here, which is, you know, a, a lot of the interventions that we're talking about um, in Medicaid and in Medicare are really focused on um, con concrete, tangible, uh, modifiable social risks, but they're not really focused necessarily on community-level uh, social determinants. Um, kind of more upstream social and structural factors that then lead to these more downstream social risk factors. And what, what we tried to do in, in a, um, a National Academy of Medicine report that came out of, uh, gosh, <laughs> given the lost year of 2020, it now feels so long ago, or didn't feel so long ago, but now it feels so long ago, uh, it came out in September 2019, um, integrating social care into healthcare delivery to improve the nation's health was to say healthcare systems not only could be acting on those sort of immediate tangible social risks, but they also could be making community level investments that might be more impactful on not only sort of the availability of social resources at the community level, but also um, uh, more more broadly impact structural and social determinants in communities. And uh, and in that way, we actually have also seen some movement, both in Medicare and Medicaid, although more specifically in Medicaid, where um, people are using, for instance, their procurement contracts to say, hey, there should be a cap on Medicaid capitation payments to a minimum, you know, minimum threshold where like a certain number of dollars needs to be spent on social determinants related interventions. Um, or that, that Medicaid organizations uh, should be sure to have a, a social determinants related strategic plan, including reinvesting in community health. So I do, I think that there, you know, there may be a limit on the return on investment on these like individual patient level interventions. Um, but we, we, we probably, we need to, I'm not even gonna say probably, we need to figure out a way to study what the impacts are of reinvesting um, at a community level, um, and, and you know, in some ways, it's a, it's it's a way of just redirecting dollars from healthcare into, you know, what where I think Paula makes that important distinction between healthcare policy and health policy, and it's a way of saying, hey, some of those healthcare dollars could be reinvested into health policy or health investments um, that could be much more impactful on health. That was a long-winded way of saying that I think the return on investment argument is. It's very complicated, and we need to be looking at it in much more dynamic ways. Yes. And, and I just want to say I am so glad that you clarified, though, Laura, that in spite of the limitation, it's true that it's difficult to study the impact of the social determinants of health. But in spite of that, there is a growing body of evidence that, that gives us a lot of information we can that we can act on now. I, I also think your point about looking the need to look about investments at the community level and not just at the individual level is a very uh, it's a very important one also thank you uh my, my last question is i and i'm citing this is you, you may be vaguely aware or know this this was a rand europe 2016 synthesis study and it drew some conclusions uh, that we would find obvious 
the U.S. has consistently spent uh, much less on social programs, and the gap between health and social spending in the U.S. has widened over time. Uh, some other more uh, sort of obvious uh, conclusions, but two I found particularly interesting. One, they drew the conclusion that the association between health outcomes and social spending is stronger in countries with higher income inequality, i.e. social spending is particularly important in countries with greater income inequality, such as the U.S. And they also found, based on their review of the literature, that the most consistent association between health outcomes and social spending is found in old age spending or spending on seniors. Um, and then thirdly, uh, there, they found a stronger association between uh, with better health outcomes for public social spending versus private social spending. So that would argue that, uh, say, for example, the Medicaid and Medicare programs, which, of course, is public spending, uh, should beef up uh, their budget for or spend more on social determinants or, again, social spending. My question is, how would you flesh out or provide details for policymakers relative to how they can address increased social spending uh, in the Medicaid and Medicare programs? Could these be loans? Would it just be a budgetary line item? Um, would it be enhancements to pay for performance models? H- how would we functionally do this? I mean, I do, I'll, I'll jump in and tell us, maybe you can help me flesh it out. But I do think that this, um, you know, the, the, um, the opportunity in, in value-based payment models to, um, really incentivize systems to, to, um, invest in what works for seniors, uh, particularly is a real opportunity. Um, so, um, yes, I do think we need to continue this move towards value-based payment models in health, in healthcare systems. We, you know, we had a big push. CMS thought they'd be much further along than where they are right now. Um, in large part because of the, the, the in, incredible pushback that they got from the for-profit healthcare industry. Um, and, and then in part because it's hard, it's hard, you know, it's hard to make these kinds of changes. Um, but but uh, I think that the commitment is still there, and it's a you know, bipartisan commitment towards value-based payment models. I mean, I think we've seen some you know pretty ex- extraordinary um, effects of programs like the PACE model in the in seniors, where they they actually you know do um, uh, provide things like housing. Uh, housing transition expenses and non-medical transportation and um, support with activities of daily living and, you know, case management. Um, and that, that's a great example of where paying for so- social care for seniors, including care that addresses social isolation and some of the sort of profound um, loneliness that can affect health um, for, for seniors uh, actually uh, um, really pays off. So I think investing in things like the pace, the pace model, uh, particularly because it is a value-based payment model, uh, is, is a perfect opportunity. Thank you. Paula, you have a comment? Uh, no. Um, no, I don't think I have um, anything to, to add, um, except perhaps the 
notion. I, I feel ambivalent about the notion of the healthcare sector being given funding to address um, social determinants of health at the community level because I wonder whether that it needs to be, you know, that investment needs to go elsewhere. Not in, the healthcare sector is just too invested in healthcare and in the individual uh, individual model, and uh, there should be some other uh, sector that would, uh, you know, uh, you know, for it's essentially community development. Um, so I, I I I feel ambivalent. I, on the one hand, I like I like the idea, and I think that evidence tells us that for a lot of the a lot of the issues, it, it is an investment at the community level that's, that's going to be necessary at the community level, at the policy level. Um, it's not going to be solved at the individual level. Um, so put it, you know, shining a light on that, I think is helpful. But on the other, other hand, I, I just have that, that concern about maybe it's better in some, some other sector, not the healthcare sector. Well, that is a very fair. I agree. I think it's a, hopefully a, Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, David, that I think it's a both and. I think the healthcare sector can do some. And I think Paul is really right that this is, there. you know, we need to separate health policy from healthcare policy. There's some that the healthcare sector can do. No, that's a very fair point. Uh, I, I genuinely appreciate you making that point, Paula, uh, that in many ways, per your earlier point, this is really community development. Uh, or should be community development monies, uh, and and it may be sufficiently uh, distinct or apart from what certainly we know traditionally the healthcare industry has done, which is very you know obviously uh, clinically intensive. So with that, um, uh, Paula and and Laura, we're at about our time uh, for this discussion. So I do want to say I'm generally appreciative for it. We 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 probably tried to cover too much ground here. But it's certainly a good overview of where we are, I think. And in fact, I think you'd both agree that we have a long way to go uh, in however or whomever addresses uh, social determinants and factoring them into improving uh, health status and population health. So with that, thank you both. Okay. Thank you so much, David, for reaching out. And Paula, it's always so much fun to learn from you and things like this. No, 